What up, what up, good people? What up, family? Welcome back to Masterclass Moments with Dr. Joel B. Kemp. My name is Dominique Aisha Robinson. That's right, from Brick City, Newark, New Jersey, bringing you live love on the podcast with Dr. Kemp. Listen, you probably hear the joy in my voice. It's because as we record this podcast, we are approaching the end of the academic year, and there is joy in our voice, in our spirit. I want you to know, if you are a student, your professors are just as exhausted as you are, and we are just as excited for the end of the year. So we're bringing to the podcast virtual stage the one and only Dr. Joe B. Kemp. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like after graduation, we should just start with let the church say amen. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the school year has arrived. We've arrived with a closing in our right minds. Oh, Ibaba. <laughs> Dr. Kemp, Dr. Kemp, here we are. Uh, it's May. Um, we've gotten through the academic year. Um, are your grades in already, Dr. Kent? Yes, turned my grades in <gasps> a week ago. So I've, I'm in my last week of meetings. So as of this week, I get a little bit of a hiatus. I am incredibly jealous right now. <laughs> you are such, yo, talk about overachievers, man. Yeah, you know, and I, I tend to be an overachiever, and then I get jealous when somebody else is an overachiever. So what you're hearing on the line now is hatred, people. This is me <laughs> being a hater right now. Dr. Kemp, man, you're living a good life. So we definitely hear joy in your voice. We, we grades are in already. Now, did you fail anybody, Dr. Kemp? Uh, well, I always like to say, I never fail anyone. <laughs> But there are, there are standards that may not have been met according oh to the guidelines. Oh, so. <laughs> my. Beloved, uh, but, if you are that student that he just described, do know I'm praying for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, my old teachers used to say for academics, the best form of prayer is preparation. Oh, my. Uh, oh, you know so what? Always, you preaching early already on the podcast. <laughs> the best for, hallelujah. Yeah, we, we got to start it off right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my. Okay. And I am, I'm working on grading now and uh, our graduation isn't until May 25th. So I won't have the same exuberant joy probably until Memorial Day weekend, um, which is when we will be having, a, you know, a live before that. So, so beloved, let me tell you now, plug it in. If you are not following and uh, subscribing now, I'm telling you to do that now. Subscribe to uh, Masterclass Moments on all of your different platforms where you can subscribe to podcasts. Please do so. Please share it with somebody. Tag somebody. Send it to them. And make sure you're following JEL Institute on social media platforms, both on Facebook and on Instagram, so that you can see what's coming. There's so many amazing things that are coming. Um, in the summer months where Dr. Kent has a little, so to speak, we say that little time off from being an actively engaged professor. So please make sure you're following us on all our social media platforms. Um, if you missed our last conversation, we were addressing a conversation, uh, preparing to preach around Mother's Day, which was rich. Um, and I know we might be taking a break, but you will hear from us around Father's Day because we're going to do equity and equality around it. Uh, we're going to yes. definitely make sure we, we, we drop something for you for that. Um, and now in our liturgical season, we are, some people would say, we're turning or turning to Pentecost or right. bending, turning, to, turning towards Pentecost. In our academic season, we are coming to a close of a season uh, where, where we're picking up on one of our previous conversations around rest and Sabbath, right? Uh, it's all culminating. We are seeing changes in the actual seasons we are living in, potentially. Some of us may have seen a spring. 
Others may have jumped right into summer. Uh, <laughs> that, that spring was that one week when it was 70. <laughs> and then that was it. Like, oh my God, in Texas, I'm waking up. I'm like, what do you mean it's 92 degrees? I wake up, y'all, I'm waking up at two o'clock in the morning, turn on the ceiling fan, like what is happening around <laughs> here? So yeah, so Dr. Kemp, before we move into our wonderful deep conversation around Pentecost, we got to ask, are you still eating Raisin Bran as the temperature gets hot? Do you still eat cereal in the, in the summer? Always, always cereal. But the other thing I'll add to the repertoire is I'm a big fan of sorbet. Um, oh, <laughs> beloved. Did you all hear that he did not tell you ice cream? He did not tell you an icy for those of y'all like me from the hood. He ain't tell you one of them 25 cent freezies. You should give him a 7-Eleven, yep. Yeah. <laughs> He didn't say a slushy. The Menegon said sorbet. Yeah. Oh, talk about bougetto out here. So what is your favorite flavor of sorbet? My favorite sorbet actually is mango sorbet. That's wow. probably my favorite. And part of why I can't do ice cream anymore is I've developed a lactose intolerance in my, uh, in my latter life. And so, you know. I can do ice cream, but it's not the it's not worth the. It's the not worth it's anymore. not worth it. But yeah. but raisin bran is. Hey, it causes no trouble, right? It <laughs> soothes the gut, <laughs> right? What did Paul say? Take a little wine; it's good for the stomach, right? A little raisin bran is good for the stomach. Oh God, just <laughs> beloved. Right then, I just start. I have an active imagination. Right then, I just saw a bowl of soggy raisin bran in the <laughs> summer heat. Just, just. Ugh, but okay, sorbet. I no, like what's this. actually good, if you put sorbet uh-huh. and you use raisin bran, it's kind of a granola with it. I think if you do that, you'll convert. You, you have mocked raisin bran, but if you do sorbet with raisin bran, you, you'll sing a whole different song. I want y'all to know that I'm not even going to comment on what Dr. Kim just offered. To, I'm going, for those um, dedicated followers and disciples of Dr. Joel B. Kemp, I'll let you testify to whether or not that has worked out because that, y'all know on your phones, you know, first of all, I'm judging you if you don't have an iPhone. Who cares, y'all? If you are using your phone, y'all know that emoji with the person throwing up the little, with the oh, yeah. that's what I just thought of when the, granola. Oh, man. You know what, Dr. Kemp? Ooh, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> took, took your breath away, didn't I? <laughs> I did. I can't. Y'all, y'all are listening to me trying to w- work through being queasy, thinking about right. <laughs> thinking about raising bread on my sorbet. Okay, right. mango, mango, mango. Okay. Right. But if you, you want to go another you, way, you when do did mango you, sorbet on top of pound cake. That's the other. Oh, so that's the other thing did, I like to do. So when did you? When did the sorbet thing start? It, it, it started after raising bread, clearly. Because yeah, you, yeah. you sound like you've been eating raisin bran out the womb. So I. Like, like, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was actually one of my uh, father's favorites. So I grew up with it in the house. So. This generational trauma. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's, uh, it's the, the prayer of J Baz, right? The raisin bran passed on. <laughs> so, Sorbet, you started this. When did this. Because, you know, you, you went to some pretty elite schools. So, when did this this other um, elite um, palette. Uh, when did this start occurring? Yeah, I have to credit the other Dr. Kemp. My Come wife. on. That's so right. She was the one who brought sorbet into my life. You know what, um, beloved? Did y'all hear that? Did y'all hear? Did y'all, boy, if this was a preaching moment, I would tell y'all about how he just testified <laughs> to how sweetness entered his life. I would go into a go. whole Absolutely. word and tell y'all what would happen when he that finds a good thing. But I'm going to leave it because that's not what this podcast is for. But y'all need to know. That's for next time. (laughs) That's for next time. Y'all need to know when when the other, right, when the the, the Dr. Mrs. Kemp gets on the line, we're going to cut up, beloved. We're going to cut up. So prepare yourself. And we might, you you might have to pay for that podcast. But anyway, 
All right. So we are turning to Pentecost. How was your Mother's Day? How did you enjoy Mother's Day, Dr. King? It was good. It was nice. Got a chance to, since both of our mothers uh, live out of state, we were able to talk with them on the phone for a little mm-hmm. while and sent them little gifts. So that was nice. Uh, they unfortunately didn't arrive on Mother's Day, but they oh, came. Same thing happened for me, but I was yeah. here, so I was able to do dinner, but like my gift still hasn't arrived. But okay, mm-hmm. we're going to pray on those things. So we're turning to Pentecost. Um, and uh, you all should know, as you listen to uh, Dr. Kemp and I have these conversations, you are hearing uh, very diverse perspectives coming together to discuss kind of, you know, church, capital C, things, liturgical seasons. Uh, I was reared Pentecostal, um, grew up in a holiness tradition where, uh, as we look at the liturgical calendar, Pentecost, or as a dear friend of mine would say, Pentecost, um, (laughs) was really the only, that and Christmas were the only liturgical days we emphasized, and I don't think we even considered it liturgical at the time. Now, being theologically trained and practiced, I look back and I say, wow, I, I didn't do Lent. I didn't do, uh, we did Easter. Let me take that back. We definitely highlighted Easter and Christmas, but Pentecost was a very big deal for me growing up. There was, we started fasting from Easter. We did a, a fast up until Pentecost. Um, we did love feasts. We did repentance services. We did communion twice a year. And this was the one time, uh, around love feast and repenting and asking people for forgiveness and publicly, um, being told when you did something wrong and who else, cause you didn't even know who else you may have offended. So uh, this is a, a rich conversation. I'm very excited to have with a Hebrew, uh, scholar and legal advisor, um, because of the riddled language that is used around Pentecost and, you know, now that I can say this, coming from out of that tradition, the elite way, we, we, we talk around Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit to us, um, in such a way as if we had a commodification of the Holy Ghost. So, Dr. Kemp, growing up Baptist, how did you engage or encounter Pentecost before we even dive into scriptures? How did, how did you, what was your introduction to Pentecost? Yeah, similar to you in kind of the Black Baptist churches that I was a part of growing up, the old jokes that we were seeing me. Right. Mm. We were Christmas, we were Mother's Day, and we were Easter. Right, okay. those were our holy days. Okay. Uh, Pentecost, we talked a bit about it, but it never got the same level of focus. Mm-hmm. Right, so like the when you describe like the fasting, right, we would do that during what uh, Catholics often call tritium. So from yes. Monday, Thursday through Holy Saturday, mm-hmm. we would fast, and then we would have sunrise service Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. That's actually one of my favorite memories as a kid. Uh, I was like six. So my parents had planned to let me sleep and not go to sunrise service. So like he's a six-year-old kid. What was he going to do? But I actually ended up waking up like half hour before they did. Um, and I remember knocking on the door saying, it's time. Oh. Um, so they were like, okay, he's up. So we'll take him with us. He was a deacon before he was a deacon. Y'all hear right. that? The <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. So Jeremiah, I knew you <laughs> kind of from the earliest days. Yes. Um, and so... Like Easter, as you described, like that that Super Bowl Sunday, right? Yeah. That's very much kind of my tradition. Uh, Pentecost, you know, got a footnote, but really it was it was really more like pastor's anniversary, church anniversary. That was like the big events in the summer, more so than Pentecost itself. Um, so it was always interesting as I moved into the other traditions and studied other traditions to see how central Pentecost is for many. Um, so that way it's a chance to kind of think about it from a biblical perspective and a if not a, a new way, hopefully in a deeper way as we get into our conversation today. For sure, for sure. And I, you know, 
it still is a high holy day for me that brings quite a, a large amount of trepidation preparing to preach for it um, because just how much weight it was given to me um, in my life. And I've shared this with our followers and listeners that, you know, I think I was scared into salvation. Um, and so <laughs> there's a part of me is like, Ooh, holiness or hell. This really shows up in my life a lot around Pentecost Sunday. And I try to pull that back being a great ordained Methodist preacher. Um, but I love that um, the churches that I've served at have a, somewhat acquiesced to my uh, value or reverence towards Pentecost, uh, particularly when I was able to serve as like pastor worship or executive pastor, we would have everybody in red. Um, and, uh, I would give our music ministries, um, tracks from Carlton Pearson and Azusa Street. And I would say, you got to pull, I need you to pull songs from these traditions. I need, I need to hear the Clark sisters. I need to, I need it. I wanted praise and worship. Yes. I wanted to hear, you know, yeah, I wanted to hear the sound of praise. I wanted to, I wanted to hear the the trumpets and the tambourines with the skin on it and the washboards and the organ. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we shifted worship a bit where it wasn't our traditional liturgy where we would you know, do our typical things. We did a lot of praise and worship word and more singing. Um, but in preparing for preaching for that, obviously most people go straight to the book of Acts and they use that text, um, which, you know, is the birthing of the church, you know, and they use the text where, you know, they were all up, you know, in the upper room, you know, makes you think it's on the 17th floor, uh, but it was in the upper, (laughs) upper room, uh, you know, with and on one accord and the spirit descended, they start speaking in all these tongues. Right. Uh, Right. That's, that's how people, what we say, um, and I have wrestled through uh, a church allowed me to do it. We, we didn't record it. So thankfully, so I'm grateful to have this conversation with you. I wrestled through paralleling that text with the Tower of Babel at one point. Yeah. And um, I want to hear from you when we talk about Pentecost, what Hebrew scriptures should come to mind? Should we look at? And is it fair to say that? That narrative in the book of Acts, where the spirit descends and people speak in different tongues, is it fair to say that that was the reverse of the curse of the Tower of Babel? Right. Yeah. So we'll start with the last question first. Okay. Is it fair to say that it's a reverse of the Tower of Babel? For me, the answer is no. Okay. And, uh, and should we call that a curse of what happened at the Tower of Babel? I, I wouldn't call it a curse. Okay. Right. You, you, have you heard people say that, though? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So there is a certain sense in which like the way the Genesis 11, which is where so Genesis Mm -hmm. 11 verses one through nine is where the kind of Tower of Babel uh, story is is recorded. How how should we pronounce this now? Fix us now. Fix us. Uh, So in Hebrew, it would be Bavel. Um, Bavel. But the the accent in Hebrew is always on the last syllable. Right. So it'll be Babel instead of Babel. So it'll be Babel. Uh, Beloved, you y'all better not get up here saying it wrong no more. Y'all better get it together. But, and and when you say it, I'm going to say, look at this educated bougie one right here. That's what I'm going right. to do when you say the towel of what is it, Babel? Babel, Babel, right? Babel. I right. want to say Babel goes Bambi. with sorbet. <laughs> <laughs> not sherbet, beloved. Sorbet. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, so and so we shouldn't call it a curse. We've got a right. correction on the name. Now, how shall we, how should we understand that text? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I always think about when I think about Genesis 11 
in its own context is it's what scholars call an etiology. Etiology, okay. Etiology, it's a fancy word that means the story of how something started. Um, so okay. like when we do like call narratives, right? That's a kind of etiology of our ministries. Okay. When you do a salvation story, that's kind of an etiology of your relationship with Christ. Um, so we use that kind of etiologies all the time. Um, but what the Genesis 11 writers are really trying to do is explain how and why you have such diversity in human languages. Okay. So this is the Genesis, which makes sense, right? The Genesis of explaining diversity. Correct. But in languages, not ethnicity. Question mark. Yes, in the sense that there's no indication from Genesis 11 within its context that the languages fall upon racial lines or on ethnicity that has national origins. Okay. Right, because the Genesis 11 text begins with everyone coming from the east to the land of Shinar, and, which is basically modern-day Iraq. Hmm. Um, and so they're coming from the east. So you think of modern day Iran and going further onto the Asian continent. Dr. So, Kemp, I got to stop you. The next time we do, or you, but the next time we do a a live um, visual session, you got to do a map for the people. You got to okay. show us. You got to show us where where we at. You got to. So so right now you're saying as we look at the Tower of not Babel, beloved, but. Babel, 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 Um, that the people were moving from the east towards the land that we currently know to be Iraq. Yes, exactly. Okay, okay. And and again, we're sharing this in 2022, where most of us are probably associating a language with an ethnicity or a land and or origin. So you're placing us somewhere and we're only mentioning it to you so you can have familiarity, but I need you to suspend what you think you know about the people and their language as we listen to Dr. Kemp talk to us about this text in Genesis. Okay, so these people are moving around. So this this is the Genesis, the story of to explain various languages in the world. Right, exactly, exactly. And so what happens over time in terms of this kind of ethnicity is eventually languages get associated with individual or unique people groups. Mm -hmm. And those people groups get tied to land. And that's where we get this notion of ethnicity. Right, so... Oh, so people group tied to land brings about ethnicity or the understanding, the concept of ethnicity. Exactly, right. So then, so later in the biblical tradition, like we know that the Amorites are a people because they speak a different language. Like the Babylonians are a different kind of people because they speak a different kind of language. The Hebrews are a different kind of people because they speak a different language. And and it is the language and not necessarily the place of origin. Right. Those two eventually kind of get intimately connected. But initially it is not. It is really an understanding of the difference in the peoples is based off of the language that is articulated versus the land that they're coming from. I'm only bringing this up to keep people, the people who are listening for us to remember, we got to start working even through that. Now, currently the moment we say somebody lives up North versus in the South and not even just North and South, or we say it's on the West side of town, we we immediately associate a type of people with place. But the truth is the Genesis or the birthing of understanding differences was really in language. Yes, exactly, exactly. I'm trying to help the people. That's all I'm trying to do. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, and the other sort of fun thing about kind of 
history of Genesis 11, before we go back to your second question, is to me, this is another example of really great biblical trash talk. Ooh, yes. Tell us. Right. So I always kind of tell students that to me, why hip hop is important is that it, it introduces artistic trash talk. Oh. And that's to me, a lot of what scripture is. And so, <laughs> right. So the, the word babble in English, we know it means to talk like nonsensically. Right. Um, and that's that name, that word, right. Comes from this passage in Genesis 11. It's also the story of the founding of the Babylonian empire, which is one of the great empires that dominated and literally kicked Israel and Judah's butt for centuries. Wait, I don't think I, I don't think I ever connected Babylon or Babylonian. I, now that's just me in my slow moment. I don't think I, I just, quite honestly, I'm not sure I've even done enough of researching and understanding those places mentioned in Genesis and how they like their, how they start to live out throughout the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. All right. So Babylonian kept or the Babylonian Right, exactly. I don't like want to say ones captivity. Who lead to the captivity yeah. Right, they, but they like the beast. They know it. They in charge. Right. So this, their beginnings are here. Right, and so this is the Hebrew Bible's version of this story. Right. So without getting too deep into the ancient Near Eastern weeds, but we know this story from another perspective outside of the Bible. What? Okay. It, and it was, so, and in that context, this story is a celebration of human ingenuity. It's a celebration of human devotion. Um, but here it's ridiculed, right? And so what really happens is, you know, the great city of Babylon is not this accomplishment of human beings or this great effort of the Babylonian gods to reach earth. It's God scattering languages, right? So imagine calling the seat of power a seat of confusion. Ooh. And that's really what this these biblical writers are doing in Genesis 11. So it's a, it's a beautiful kind of, you know, another sort of scholarly word, polemic, uh, which is a fancy way of saying trash talk. Um, Would this be what they say in my field um, signifying? Yeah, it's in that it's in that same kind of family. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and now not to not to make it a racial thing, but I, I I have found it very interesting that ethnic people, the use of the empire's language. Mm-hmm. the twisting of it or uh, the transgressing that is done with the use of the empire's language to retell the story always becomes very powerful. And then the use yeah. of, I would say like uh, sarcasm and or humor or what we would call what jonesing or yeah, yep. what is it? What are you, what, what does your generation call it? Something about dozens. Oh, the, the dozens. Yeah. <laughs> playing the dozens. <laughs> yeah. Your, your generation called right. jones and playing the dozen cracking jokes. It, I, I like I like to hear that that genre exists in the Bible because I don't think we always get an opportunity to see that. Right. So this is that moment of you know in some ways a clapback is what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's a way again. One of the things I always emphasize to students in my classes is the Bible has an edge to it, and that edge is really how do we define ourselves as being God's chosen in a world that says we are the losers. Mm. because again, literally Israel and Judah are dominated for almost their entire history. And if a God is measured by that God's ability to deliver political victory, Judah and Israel have very few of them. And so how then do you take your defeat and make it a victory? And that's the story of the Hebrew Bible for me. 
which obviously for those of us who are in the New Testament tradition, the ability to preach on that for Easter ought to be I was shouting. about to say, I was about to say, well, doc, we, we, oh, death, where is, that's right. Oh, exactly. grave, where is your, that's right. That's where this comes. That's, that's so good. Okay. So when we, when we consider this Genesis 11 text by itself or the way we, you know, should read a text in, in the context it was written, when we put it in relation to the Acts narrative around Pentecost, First of all, should we? Are we? Uh, is that is that is that intertextual behavior uh, too egregious to do? Um, and if we if it's not, then what are some considerations we should keep in mind putting those two narratives in conversation? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's a long tradition of putting those two together. Mm-hmm. And then for those of you who are listening who may be part of lectionary preaching. We do like the revised common lectionary. This Genesis 11 text is often one that's put in conversation with Acts 2. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the main reason they're put together is that each of them involve human language, human communities, and a movement of God. Say, say that again for the people in the back. Sure. Mm-hmm. So they all involve human communities mm-hmm. with human language and it's connected to a move of God. Okay. Okay. And so when people say they see this as a reverse, so to speak, they're talking about, they look at the Genesis text as uh, God using language to confuse us or people to confuse, right? To confound the people. And then we get to the Acts narratives and and people see this gift of the Holy Spirit using language to create some sort of uniformity or not uniformity, uh, unity. Unity, yeah. Yeah, and I think there, there for me, there's a that subtle difference, but it, to me, it, it matters a great deal theologically, mm-hmm. right? So in the Genesis 11 story, right, it, it tells us that everyone there had one language, mm-hmm. right? So we were all speaking, presumably, some ancient Semitic language, but that's an assumption, <laughs> right? Safe for you to make the assumption. You, this is what <laughs> right. you study and <laughs> um, But what ends up happening is all those languages then get scattered. And in the the Genesis narrative, it's done to prevent human beings from going crazy. And by crazy, I don't mean with any kind of mental difficulties, but by just becoming tyrants. And it's the idea that the scattering of our languages becomes a source of protection. Um, And so I often will joke, I think some of the biblical writers view human beings as like the worst version of fraternities in college. Yeah. Which is... If you get two or three gathered, what happens is mischief. Um, so like, it's not like two or three gathered. We're more likely to study the Bible, eat raisin bran, oh, <laughs> and God. do those kinds of things, right? We're more likely to go on the town, paint it red, to use a really old expression. Well, um, I'm definitely painting it red, beloved. For those of you who are <laughs> tuning in, I need you to know that this this Delta girl here is going to paint the town red. But, right. But I but but we are a dignified organization and we don't behave as such. So, but yes, right. <laughs> right. But things won't get too out of hand with with your sisters. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, and so, with that fear of kind of human unfiltered interactions producing chaos, producing trouble then the scattering of the languages becomes a protection of that. What happens in Acts 2, that's the story of Pentecost, right? It's not that God gives everyone in attendance one language. Rather, it's that God communicates the gospel 
in every person's individual language. Wait, wait, say that part again. Rather, God does what? So in Genesis 11, God takes human beings as having one language and scatters us so we have many. Mm -hmm. In Acts chapter 2, what we have is one message, right? The gospel of Christ being preached in multiple languages. One message, not one language. Exactly. Exactly. And to me, so that's one why message being spread in various languages. Right. Exactly. Okay. Which doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that they understood each other. Right. Exactly. What, what it means from Acts 2's perspective is that, you know, if I'm from Babylon and I speak some form of Akkadian and if I'm from China, and I speak some ancient form of, of Chinese, if I'm from Nigeria, wherever, if I'm from America, I mean, wasn't there, but hypothetically, I'm speaking mm -hmm. English. What happens at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is that the person who speaks Akkadian hears the gospel in perfect Akkadian. The person who speaks English hears the gospel in perfect English. Yeah. The person from China hears the gospel in perfect Mandarin or Cantonese. You have that moment. It's not as though we all speak one common language again. And so for me, that's part of why I don't think it's appropriate to view it as a reversal of the curse of Genesis 11, right? Because it, there's no critique of diversity. There's actually a celebration of it in Acts 2. Mm. Um, and I think that's important for a lot of the conversations we hear kind of about kind of racial reconciliation in the church right now, where difference is viewed as the problem. And for God, difference is not the problem. It's the divisions that are the problem. <sighs> so explain to us again, the person who is speaking, you know, French, they right. hear the gospel clearly in French. Correct. Versus the way some of us have been understanding it as we speak two different languages and I suddenly now understand Spanish and you suddenly now understand French. Right. while I'm speaking in my native tongue, which is very different, beloved, than speaking in tongues the way we understand it in Correct. our church culture. Correct. Exactly. Now, talk to us a bit, Dr. Kemp, about we see this, this narrative, this story in Acts around this gifting of the Holy Spirit. Is mm -hmm. there any parallel in the Hebrew scriptures around this gifting and or movement of spirit in the same way? Yeah, there, there are two that come to mind. Uh, one is in the book of Acts itself, when <laughs> one of my favorite passages, when um, people are observing all of this and all these random kind of uneducated fishermen are suddenly speaking, you know, perfect French. Mm. And they're like, these men must be drunk. Right. Uh, and I always laugh, like, since when has drunkenness produced fluency in other languages? Well, you know, Dr. Like, Kemp, there are, some <laughs> there are some students who would uh, argue that uh, right. their, their liquid courage has assisted them with <laughs> writing more fluent. Uh, they might edit in a sober mindset, but, right. Right. but you're right. The, 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 the known, that, that comment does throw me off of it as well, because I right. saw it as like, you find this to be foolish. Right. Right. Uh, instead of, such clarity, like celebrating that, oh, you've come down with this message. It is, y'all must be up there doing whatever you want to. Right. Um, and this is also in light of 
these people are still grieving the loss of Jesus Christ, right? right. Like there's right. grief and loss. Uh, in some ways, they were in their own quarantine, uh, hiding, um, and now they're being accused of being drunks by their behavior. Right. So yeah, yeah. exactly. And so in response to that <laughs> accusation of drunkenness, like Peter says, look, I mean, it's like middle of the day. No one is drunk this time of day. And then the second thing he does is he quotes from the prophet for whom I am named, Joel. Yes. And talks about, in that last day, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters. Exactly. Do y'all see I'm sanctified on Islam, beloved? Did I know the scriptures? Y'all better know your scriptures. Exactly. Exactly. It's one of the things, hopefully, get more familiar with it as we go along. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but absolutely. So, right, there's this sense in which one of the great signs of God's movement is when God pours out Again, in the language of Prophet Joel, pours out his spirit upon all flesh, right? And what's important about some of that passage in Joel and what we've talked about in our podcast is that it is all flesh, right? That sons and daughters will prophesy. Mm -hmm. So their name, both are named. Um, So it's not exclusive in any way to any gender, nor is it exclusive to demographics, right? Because it goes on to talk about how old men shall see visions and young men, or old men shall dream dreams and young men shall see visions. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a certain kind of um, egalitarianism, if you want to use I like that word. It. I like it. And for our non-binary siblings who are listening, hear what's being said, that even in the interpretation of this text, it really still isn't about the binary. It is about, uh, it's it's the inclusion of all, really, which is becoming powerful, uh, which is it's really one of the texts that I use often to quote unquote defend why are women preachers. But okay. anyway... Yeah, certainly kind of to the extent the claim for preaching is connected to one's claim to access to God's spirit. Yes. Then certainly that passage in Joel can be used as part of that argument. Yeah. Um, although sure. although we on the line don't believe the argument is necessary, but go on. But so, yes, <laughs> the spirit here, this is a spirit move here. And you're right. saying, and he's quoting Joel. So then in essence, we could say that spirit move is, is in Hebrew scriptures because it's coming right. out of out of Joel. Absolutely. Uh, Okay. All right. So spirit. Hallelujah. Now, do you say Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, Dr. Kim? Uh, I say Holy Spirit. I was raised in the Holy Ghost tradition, but I say Holy Spirit. <laughs> is there a reason you say Holy Spirit? <laughs> um, this is, again, this will be one of those language moments, but just because spirit has a different connotation to me than ghost. Okay. And so like spirit dealing with like wind. Uh, so something that's real, but not tangible. Uh-huh. And to me, ghosts often has, at least in modern English, it has this like spooky, otherworldly, mm-hmm. um, like Casper the Friendly Ghost kind of mm-hmm. imagery, <laughs> uh, which I, again, the Holy Spirit is not like a souped up Casper. Right. Uh, so that's why I tend to use spirit and not ghost. <laughs> All right. All right. I like it. Thank you for explaining that to us on the line. I go back and forth between the two, depending on where I am. Yeah. I yeah. do wonder if my, our African practices is what makes us or make me say holy ghost more mm-hmm. um like you said in the, in the other worldly veneration of ancestor type practices um because i believe we mean what you have described in spirit right i think right. the choice of word might be connected to cultural practices and that that either way y'all holy spirit holy ghost okay so the spirit is moved in joel is there right. another or i'm sure there are several but is there another example in hebrew scriptures that you would emphasize or highlight as we prepare for pentecost yeah some scholars 
try to draw a connection between kind of Genesis 1 Ooh. and Acts 2. When right? God moved across the face of the earth. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right. So there's, so again, as we were talking earlier in our podcast, that the Pentecost is often viewed as like the birth of the church. Yes. Or some will say it's the creation of the church. Yes. So anytime kind of the words of creation get invoked in Christian traditions, we always look back to God's original act within Genesis 1 through Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. And so we're then kind of looking at, are there parallels? Are there points of, you know, the fancy way, continuity or discontinuity uh, between those two two texts? We like fancy words on the podcast. Right, exactly. You know, get to educate us Edumacate all. Educate us all. <laughs> um, and so I think part of what, what's interesting for me in, in thinking about those two two stories, so Genesis 1 versus Genesis, Acts 2, excuse me, is I like to focus on the differences because to me, that's when the theology to me gets richest. Mm. So in Genesis 1, and this is a quick Hebrew language moment. Uh Uh-oh, y'all ready? um, We get the word ruach. So ruach. So you get Mm. the nice little in the back. Uh, So ruach is the word that often gets translated as spirit. But it's ruach, ruach. Yeah. It's like the exactly. breath of God. Exactly. It can mean breath. It can mean wind. Ah. And so in Genesis 1, how many Hebrew Bible scholars were translated, and I would put myself in this group, is that it's not the spirit of God hovering over the deep. It's literally a breath, a wind of God. And part of why I think it's the wind of God is that there's an allusion to another mythology that the Hebrew Bible writers are using here. Okay. Um, And so they're alluding to this other ancient battle that takes place among the gods. And when the the god who ultimately becomes a champion wins, part of what happens is that his spirit wanders over it. Kind of if you, for those of you who are boxing fans, you remember the famous portrait of at uh, that time, he's Muhammad Ali. He knocks out a box and he stands over him with his arm kind of cuffed. Or if you watch NBA basketball, a guy hits a shot and steps over the guy who fell down after a crossover. Right? That's really what Genesis 1 and 2 is describing. It's mm-hmm. that moment of a God standing over a, a defeated enemy. Okay. Um, so now, see, keep going, Dr. Kemp, because now my questions are taking us down another podcast rabbit hole because here you're telling us this narrative of God coming out of a battle, the God we know, Yahweh, right? right. Uh, after defeating other gods, whomever they might be. But you definitely did say, we go back to God's original act, which God was acting before Genesis was written. Right, right. Ugh, there's so much, beloved, that we have to study yeah. so much. But anyway, okay, so yeah. God wins, and he's right. flexing on the people. Exactly. So now this breath. Right, or this wind of God is then kind of hovering over it, right? And the the face of the deep in Hebrew, Alpanetahom. Um, and the the word Tehom is actually a version of a goddess's name from other traditions. And so there's this question of are the are the Hebrew Bible writers kind of saying like that story you know about these other gods winning by killing these other gods? Well our God was kind of doing a similar thing. Um, so it's part of how do you build God's resume? That's how I often describe it to, to students. So the creation story is how you how God is building God's resume. I like it. Um, wow, because uh, man, and this is also the same word or verb, I guess, 
breath and all that. We can make that a noun. Um, that's used with Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. Yes, exactly. Because right. now I'm starting because because preachers, listen to me for two seconds. You can take it. I don't care. I think I'm preaching. I don't know. But I'm I'm starting to then see this now as a reassembling. Um, mm-hmm. Because if this same wind or breath of God went over the defeat of previous persons and the same power and breath then creates, there's this reassembling of an existence because the previous one was destroyed. Uh, and then this breath that continues to quote unquote move this wind uh, that continues to move. We know the reassembling of the army in the Valley of the, you know, dry bones with Ezekiel. And then we get to book of acts. There is a reassembling of believers to be known as a church later, but there's a reassembling of them in a way that still becomes very public because they were, the reason they were in the upper room is because they were privately gathering to plan what was next. Um, and then I believe we go into the very first mega church being birthed, uh, yeah. you know, with uh, my man, my favorite disciple, Peter, cussing us, the cussing apostle, preaching right. his trial sermon and births the main, you know, <laughs> he births the first new birth. But anyway, and so, yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, so this, this breath, this wind of God um, that we see in Genesis, we keep seeing it and experiencing over and over again. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and that there are some who will argue, and depending on what day of the week you catch me, depends on how much I agree with this, is that we should not view God's act of creation as taking, making sort of something out of nothing, mm-hmm. but rather God's creative power is that he takes chaos and makes it something beautiful and a masterpiece. So that God is not about construction, he's about renovation. Oof, you know what, uh, Dr. Kemp, that on that note, we're going to conclude this podcast. What, what final <laughs> thoughts? Because that, that was the dance and the shot right there. Beloved, if you decide to preach Pentecost as renovation, you owe Dr. Kemp a seed. You need to go ahead and sow into it. And in light of that, he's going to share with you uh, some concluding thoughts, how to follow us, and any information about what's coming down <laughs> on our calendar. <laughs> we'll leave on the renovation. Note. Oh my God, that was good preachment right there. I, right. I might have to use it. I'm going to borrow it. Right. Hey, as long as I, as long as I get a footnote, so you a little dime on it, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, again, as always, just the, the last quick thing and just say to sort of tie up one loose end on, on this sort of question of the spirit and creation within the context of Acts. Right. Within the context of Acts, what's clear is that the New Testament writers are telling us that it is unquestionably God's spirit, particularly the Holy Spirit, who is at mm. work. Right. So while in Hebrew in the creation story, we have there's some flexibility. Is it a wind of God, spirit of God, breath of God, etc. For the writers of Acts, it is self-evident that this is God's work. So sort of the old psalm, like this is God's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. That that's part of what the Acts 2 writer is trying to emphasize, that what happens in this moment, as you said, the birth of the church, so the first great mega church in Peter's trial sermon, right? <laughs> this is all absolutely what God's spirit is doing, which is why I think they invoke Joel chapter 2 there to kind of tie it together that this is the work of God's spirit, that God's spirit is the one that inspires growth, that inspires preaching, and that ultimately leads to conversion. 
Mm. So I think that's where Acts 2 is really trying to lay that foundation for us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so as we kind of wind up in our podcast, um, again, as always, want to thank the one and only Dominique <laughs> Robinson uh, for for being with us and helping us lead, lead us through, unbelievably, the last podcast of this season. I don't know. When is the next season? Because we got to do Father's Day. Yeah, so maybe we'll just maybe we'll do like a special a pop up pop up exactly pop up podcast exactly. It's the last one of the season. Yeah, oh. <laughs> it's like cute boys that meant so hard to say goodbye to yesterday. Oh man! <laughs> but we we will be back in the fall, so it'll just be a short hiatus over the summer uh, from the podcast. And again, as we said before, if you going to get a podcast anywhere spotify itunes anywhere you get your podcasts uh we can be found there also as always please make sure you follow us on facebook and instagram at jel.institute and at jel.institute also remember our website just launched uh, about three weeks ago www.jel.institute so www.jel.institute so make sure you subscribe to us there we'll keep you updated on some things we're doing over the summer and also, you have access, again, to the Hebrew hotline. So if you want to say, hey, what you gave about Pentecost sounds really interesting, but I want to refine it a little bit more before I preach in about a month, that's a place you can go online and book a private session with me for about 30 to 40 minutes. We can help unpack some of this in more depth. Um, the thing we're excited about for the summer is we'll have what we're calling kind of a mini masterclass. So you'll it'll be a seven-session uh, investigation of the life of Moses. My mind. Um, so we look forward to that, and we're planning to do that in uh, the month of July. But stay tuned to our website and to Facebook and Instagram, and we'll give you some information about how you can sign up for that and who some of our special guests will be. Uh, as always, we're interested in not only kind of teaching more about the Bible, but also thinking about how you can apply this in church context and preaching. So we have some special guests that are being worked out, and we look forward to having them join us on our sort of masterclass moments. Um, our final event for this first season will be our final Masterclass Moments Live at the, in May. So we'll be back on Facebook Live and we'll pick up with some of the things we talked about here on Pentecost. We might do a little Father's Day shout out. Um, and if we can get it together in enough time, we might do a little map as well to show you a little bit of where we are and just give you a little teaser of that yeah. uh, to get a sense of where we are, in the, literally where we are in the world of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Uh, so we're looking forward to all that coming. And last but not least, I can't let you go without at least one Hebrew word for the journey. Um, so as we were talking about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit, uh, we talked about spirit being ruach. So I want to leave you with the word for holy, kadash. Kadash. In Hebrew, the word holy means literally to be set apart, to be set aside. And it often has this sense of to be consecrated. That is, you're to be specially set aside for temple use. What's important about this notion of being set, af- set aside for holy use, for cultic use, for temple use, is later we will read in the New Testament where they will pick up this very language. And the apostle who's responsible for Peter will say, for you are a chosen generation, a peculiar people. And then he'll invoke the same language of holiness in that. So one of the unique things about the Hebrew Bible, and this is my last thought I close with today, is when God thinks about things that are holy, things that are kadash, God identifies God's own creation, you and me, as those who are eligible to become holy. 
So indeed, what it means to be a saint in the Hebrew Bible, it's literally the word to be a holy one, to be a set-aside one. So it is my prayer as we go through this Pentecost season, you'll receive in a new way the gift of the Holy Spirit to be a set-aside one, a holy one. And in that unique place of being set aside, you'll find the truth that God continues to provide just enough light for the step you're on. God bless you and thank you for joining us once again on Masterclass Moments with Dr. Joel B. Kemp. Thank you.